Okay, Got it. Fine, right. This year, Manx Radio looks back 60 years to its first broadcasts. Throughout the year, we will visit those people and incidents and things that happened and those that didn't happen. But today, Jean Moss goes back to the gestation of the nation station. It's less of a narration and not a bloviation, rather a peroration of the elation we feel on making this amazing landmark. Oh, come on. Who wrote this? No danger of an award this year. This is Manx Radio, broadcasting on 188 metres on the medium wave band and also on 89 and 91.2 megacycles VHF from Douglas, Isle of Man. Leave that knob alone. You have arrived at your destination. May have taken you a while to get here, 60 years. What kept you? No, no, don't tell me. You're here now. That's the important thing. I can tell you that you have missed quite a bit in those 60 years, lots and lots. But never mind. Just take a comfy seat. Not that one. Uh, it's mine. J- j- let me fill that glass. I'd best leave the bottle here as well. Uh, and to quote Max Bygraves... I want to tell you a story. It takes in a lot of people. A lot of things have happened in this story. Lots and lots of people have taken part. Let's go back, not to 1964, but further back than that. Yes, OK, 64 was when the Manx governor told what was initially, because of the small transmitter that had to be used, a modest audience. Happy listening to you all. That was Sir Ronald Garvey, a bright spark who really got things going. He was the governor and he helped set up a radio station in Fiji when he was governor there. So when he arrived here, he knew his amplitude modulated from his vacuum tube. And here he was on another island with palm trees, with sun-kissed beaches, with dusky maidens, uh, ripped bronzed beach hunks. Sir Ronald was someone who ranks alongside the likes of Governor Henry Locke as enormously influential in the development of this island, in tax terms in particular. But a year after he arrived, in 1959 he arrived, he authorised the establishment of Radio Manx Limited. Uh, So the die was cast. But no, hold on, it was a considerable struggle. It was much earlier, though, that a cautious political toe had been gingerly put into Manx waters in 1922... That's the same year as the British Broadcasting Company that was established, and MHK Harry Cowan had argued in Tinwall the case for a Manx independent radio station, probably because he'd heard about this BBC. Now, because of an agreement, the island needed a licence to be granted by the UK Postmaster General. Quite a few of the members glanced nervously in the direction of Whitehall and uh, bravely decided against prodding the British bear. But that nervousness didn't apply to one Charles Carouche, but more about him in a moment. A bit of background. While these days we are swamped with a choice of pop music stations, in the early 60s young people were somewhat restricted. There was Radio Luxembourg. That signal from Europe sort of faded back and forth, which was part of its attraction, really. But it it was better than nothing. The BBC, British Broadcasting Company then, initially was set up after a tender process, and it was headed by a radio god. In the earliest days, it was without form and shape, or even Tony Blackburn. A 
And good morning, everyone. Welcome to the exciting new sound of Radio 1. But it did have one thing, a light to guide it. The light's name was John Reith, later to be Lord Reith. He was a 37-year-old Scottish engineer and devout Calvinist. He wasn't lacking in confidence, which perhaps was needed when you're midwife to an institution. I want to take you right on now. We started with your applying for the job at the British Broadcasting Company, and I now want to ask you about your time at the company and later the corporation. Looking back all these years later at the work of constructing the BBC, because, I mean, that's what you did, are you conscious of having made any substantial error of judgment or mistake in, in the edifice which you erected? No. Lord Reith's vision for the BBC was that it should be available for everyone, should maintain high standards, should operate as a monopoly, be funded by a licence fee and remain independent of political and commercial uh, pressures. Not a bad list, really. Of course, during the war years, the BBC built a reputation as the place to go to for an objective view of events, although, of course, occasionally it was more an allied objective view of events. Its presenters had voices that were designed to be recognisable, indeed, household names. This is London. London calling in the home, overseas and European services of the BBC and through United Nations Radio Mediterranean. And this is John Snag speaking. But this isn't about the BBC, it's about Manx Radio. What prompted the setting up of a studio inside a caravan on a windy signpost corner? Ah, I was hoping you'd ask that. For music, Manx Radio. For information, Manx Radio. The station that's all hearts. And hi there, a very good morning indeed from yours truly, Peter Neal. Welcome to Sunday Morning Sometime. The time on the chime, it's 11 o'clock. One of the voices that became household items across the island over the years, Peter Neal. But for the island to get its own radio station, it needed several things. The ability, the know-how to actually put together the transmitters. And, of course, staff needed to run such a body. And perhaps more importantly, initially, permissions required from the UK to be allowed to broadcast. Harold, known as T.H. Colburn, was a businessman who had seen the potential of the television business and also the gap in the market that existed in pop music broadcast for young people. How about, he suggested, a radio station based in the island which could transmit across the UK? Well, Westminster wasn't enamoured with this idea. Luckily, the Manx had a redoubtable senior politician in the form of Charles Carouche, a real war leader. He constantly battled, quote Derek Winterbottom's A Nation's Station, for the island to free itself from political control of Westminster as much as possible. There followed a series of meetings with the UK over what was and wasn't possible in broadcast terms. And these heads-to-heads became quite acrimonious at times. The UK didn't want the BBC monopoly for broadcasting in the UK to be broken. So, no, the island couldn't broadcast into the UK. Any transmissions, they said, should peter out at the Manx coastline. However, the Manx hoped that once their station was up and running, he might just, with a following wind, reach parts of the UK. 
The limited transmitters on offer led to the disgruntled original team of directors voting no. The Manx government then turned to the company Pi. Early in 1964, John Grierson was appointed general manager of the putative national station. Really, we were in a caravan. We had the transmitter, the radio station, the office, the loo, the kitchen, everything in this one caravan supplied by then Pi of Cambridge.、Uh, it was very basic stuff indeed. This is John Grierson talking to you from our studio on the Balakari Estate in Ongan Isle of Man. May we have your attention, please? This station, although it's been engaged in the past five months in bringing to the island the beginnings of its own radio service, has not yet been declared officially open. It's my great pleasure and privilege to call upon His Excellency, the Lieutenant Governor of the Isle of Man, to open your station, Manx Radio, Sir Ronald Garvey. The appointment of the Isle of Man Broadcasting Company to operate Manx Radio and provide listeners on the island with their own local broadcasting service. You must all know that for many years the government government has been trying to arrange for a service of this nature. Many difficulties have had to be overcome to allow the service to start even now, and further difficulties have yet to be dealt with. However, a license for a medium wave length has now been issued by the Postmaster General. In addition to the license for VHF broadcasting issued last June, and this makes the service available to more listeners than was the case up to a month ago. Unfortunately, the wavelength which has been allocated, 188 meters, is right at the end of the band, and quite a high proportion of sets are unable to tune into it. We have therefore requested Her Majesty's Government to give urgent consideration to the allocation of a more easily tuned wavelength, at least during daylight hours, and we are hopeful that before long this request will be granted. Another difficulty at present is that the programmes cannot be heard properly on the medium wave band, except within a few miles of Douglas. However, now that the agreement with the Isle of Man Broadcasting Company has been approved by Tinwold, the company can start on the work of installing special aerials,、uh, so that the programmes will, as far as the conditions of the post office licence allow, be heard all over the island. This work may take two or three months, and it will cost a good deal of money. But there should be a big improvement once it is completed. Another handicap for the service at the moment is that Manx Radio is only allowed by the manufacturers of gramophone records in England to use a very small proportion of English-produced gramophone records in its programmes. This limits, to some extent, the variety of music broadcast. But all possible efforts are being made to obtain permission for a wider use of these gramophone records, and it is hoped that in the new year the situation will improve. Now I tell you all this so that you may know some of the obstacles which have to be surmounted before Manx Radio can give you the full service they intend to provide. Meanwhile.
Every effort is being made to give you all the best service possible in the circumstances. And, in addition to providing you with a full program of entertainment, to keep you fully informed of all the activities in the life of our island. After the many years spent in endeavouring to arrange for the Isle of Man to have its own broadcasting service, I am very happy today to be able formally to declare Manx Radio open and, using the station's own slogan, to say, Happy listening to you all. It happened in the Isle of Man because we, that is to say, my stepfather Dick Mayer and myself, together with others, uh, decided that we wanted to do a demonstration of what proper local, British local radio could sound like. Because anybody in government at that time, you just mentioned the word commercial radio to them, and what they thought they were going to hear was American. And we had to demonstrate to them that it was not going to be like that. So we got going with the first ever truly local station. Uh, and by the way, anybody who thinks that BBC stations were local never were, because they were regional stations right from the word go. Uh, Manx Radio was genuinely local. It was just for the Isle of Man. What about the programming in those early days? Awful. Um, the, mostly it was, it was me just talking about this, that and the other, doing some very, very, very local parochial news and playing music, which of course was very difficult to come by because in those days you had the almighty power of the Musicians' Union, the BBC and the PPL ranged against us because they would not let us play commercial ra um, music on the... On the um, on the station. So we had to use what was called non-PPL music. And what I did was to go to America and I came back with a tea chest full of stuff that was very good but non-PPL. What were your influences though as a radio station? Where did the influence of the sound come from? I, well I suppose the answer is uh, inevitably with a radio station that's just starting up the music was very important because it, 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 it was the bait to get people and don't forget we were playing music that nobody had ever heard nor could ever have heard because it came from somewhere else but also the locality, the parochialism, the genuine super localness of the station was what really mattered. We were out there in the, in the population talking, bringing him to the station um, stealing things from the local newspapers, etc. Locality meant what it said back in those days. I have been once, and I remember sitting in the reception area. People were coming in and out. It was very much part of the, the community. And I, and I do know that uh, it, it, it's, it's well known that you used to carry obituaries on the air, didn't you? Oh, we did indeed, yes. I mean, obituaries are very important in a small community. Uh, who's dead and why and who did what when and so on and so forth. So, yes, we, we did... You, you, actually, I have to say... You name it, we did it, as long as it had the tag local attached to it, because that was the key. If it was not relevant to local people at the Isle of Man, it didn't feature, it didn't happen. And the facilities, I, I presume, sort of improved since the early days, didn't they? Well, my goodness, yes. Well, we moved out of the caravan after about uh, uh, six months or a bit more down to a much more uh, salubrious accommodation down on the, on the promenade itself in Douglas, but then... We, um, well, the things moved on after that. I left after three years, handed it over to other people, and, of course, it's still there, still doing what I started doing in 1964, and I'm very proud of it indeed. The caravan was great, a little kitchen, 
a nice little studio. We had a sign on the toilet to say, don't flush the toilet if the, if the microphone's on. In 1968, you said you weren't going to become a disc jockey. Very few people knew what it meant because there weren't that many radio stations. When I look, listen back to old recordings, I sound like the Queen. I'm so embarrassed. I, I thought, I never, surely I never spoke like that. But I did. We did. That's what you were trained to do. It was the BBC voice. When they first started, there was no such thing as cassettes or anything to play the commercials on. They played them off a tape recorder and started and stopped it. The 1980s were, without doubt, for me, the golden age of Manx Radio. We then... Um, came up with the catchphrase of the best biking station in the world, and I have no doubt that in those days it was. Manx Radio was becoming so disliked because we asked them the really awkward question that they didn't want to have asked. He described Manx Radio as the alternative government. They actually hated us. We reflect every aspect of national culture and national life. It's where you tune into first to hear anything that's going on. That's why we were created, in a way, to... Um, inform, entertain and to educate. Because we were, we were sort of pioneers, there was nothing like it. I mean, the island wasn't used to anything like this. So the nation's station was up and, well, swaying, it has to be said, when the wind blew, the caravan up there at Signpost moved around. Records that were played, and they were vinyl in those days, had to be weighed down with coins to stop them jumping off. But this was the time of, of Caroline, of Radio London et al., it wasn't where you broadcast from that matters, it was what arrived at the pointy end. Not the location, but the syncopation. And if you could adopt a suitable uh, I'm a bodacious jock presentation style, it mattered, just to emphasise, you were at the heart of the pop outlaw kingdom, which, of course, the pirates were initially. For most taking up this career, this was a new world, and they learned as they went along. I know when I started presenting programmes, and yes, indeed, I was awful, my hand shook so much with nerves, I had to gauge where the needle went on the track and then hope it landed somewhere close. But what prompted most people to come on board this new experience? George Ferguson still broadcasts at Manx Radio after a career that took him to a number of stations, including the Beeb. Two days after I left school, I joined Manx Radio. Manx Radio. Why in particular Manx Radio? Uh, because it was the only place that I could get a job. So you applied for it. But yes. what qualifications did you have? I mean, you came, you were at St. Bees in Cumbria, which I, is just I across was. the water. Yes. What, what did you say? I'm George Ferguson. I can do this, this, this. What? No, I, I, I wrote to the governor and he replied. The Manx governor? Yes. I, that I, was, I, who was that? That was uh, the time. Sir Peter Stallard. Peter Stallard, yeah. Go on, Stallard. And yeah. he replied saying... By the way, I had a very good game of golf with your father yesterday. Dr. Ferguson. So I thought, I'm in. So that's what I did. Well, why did you want to go into radio? Because basically, um, I couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> <laughs> do, do a lot of DJs go into radio for that reason? Well, more than likely. Uh, I couldn't think of anything else, and uh, that was uh, a solution to uh, my further education. <laughs> but you, you launch yourself from being a schoolboy into talking to hundreds, perhaps even thousands occasionally on, on air. It's yeah. a nerve-wracking occasion. Did you take to it? Uh, I did, and it wasn't, it wasn't a problem. Uh, I enjoyed every single minute of it, um, and I, sti I, I still do, after all these years, probably 56 years. 
Was it the fact that there were pirate ships floating around the place, or had been? Uh, was that the sort of thing that attracted you? As, uh... Well, the the pirate radio station, Caroline, uh, was there, and George Campbell, uh, sorry, George Cowley, uh, was the gentleman who was uh, organising the boat trip and uh, the to the uh, Caroline, and uh, I was there. I went out and enjoyed every single minute of it. I wasn't allowed to broadcast because that was the way of the world, but I enjoyed every single minute of it, and uh, I lasted for about two weeks. Well, that was from a, a boat bobbing around the Irish Sea mm. to, to a, a site on the promenade, which had a fish tank next yes. to it famously, mm-hmm. fairly small, so rather different, chalk and cheese. It was, yes, it was chalk and cheese, but it was it was a treat, and not only that, but there were only fifteen staff. Uh, and when I came in, I used to have to turn the transmitter on, uh, etc. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a way of life. These days, all the records are programmed, the music's programmed, the adverts are programmed. What did you do? You just go and choose some records. Yes, basically. As simple as that. And we were told not, we were told what not to play um, by Peter Neal. Well, give us some for instances what not to play. I, I know famously the uh, Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds by the Beatles was scratched out <laughs> yes, on the was. LP so yeah. you couldn't play it. That, that's yeah. what happened, did they? They scratched out they did, on yes. the vinyl. Uh, it, it was a a strange game in so many in so many ways probably the song that springs to mind um was uh night owl by jerry rafferty, jerry rafferty. Uh, and that was particularly persona non grata came to be, but with the arrival of the Marine Broadcasting Offences Bill from a Labour government in 1964, aimed at silencing the floating pirate radio stations, and then in Europe, Strasbourg agreeing to that move to close the pirates, the next three years saw Manx Radio bouncing around on choppy waters as regards the island's liberty to broadcast what and to whom it wanted. At one stage, when the House of Keys refused to accept the Marine Offences Bill, the UK government threatened to impose it upon the Manx. So very early on in its existence, Manx Radio witnessed a constitutional crisis between us and them. That rumbled on for a couple of years with, amongst others, Charles Carouche at the forefront of the battle, thumping the table on occasion down at Whitehall. 
1967, Pi sold out to Philips after Pi decided Manx Radio wasn't destined to become the British Radio Luxembourg. It was proposed that the Manx government should buy out Pi, and after a lengthy debate, they voted to do just that, so Manx Radio passed into Manx government ownership. Initially, the idea seems to have been that the island could cash in in terms of profit and publicity by having a radio station. Indeed, when Caroline North was parked off Ramsey, the lenient eye the Manx government turned to the pirates, allowing them, for instance, to be supplied from Ramsey, resulted in the pirates constantly referring, under orders of their owner, to the glorious weather the island was enjoying. It seemed to listeners, to Caroline, the island enjoyed a near-Mediterranean climate at all times, which, for those considering a Manx vacation, was very useful to the tourism department. Manx Radio, the early years, when in Derek Winterbottom's words, the diet was mostly light music and news. Its style and content has altered, of course, over the decades, as management looked at and then tweaked the offering, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. Some examples of early content in a moment. With 60 years of broadcasting now achieved, and despite constant, and there have been over a dozen reports produced and talked over into Manx Radio's future, and indeed its past, the broadcaster still broadcasts. Its style and content has altered over the decades, as management looked at and then tweaked the offering. But let's try this simple question. What's Manx Radio for? Entertainment? News? Information? Or is the Matrix a combination of that? Uh, Radios 1, possibly not these days. Radios 2, likely. Radio 3, there is a classic programme on Manx Radio. And speech, there is quite a bit of speech. Indeed, the station is obliged, under the terms of its operation, to produce a good percentage of speech programmes. Current Managing Director is Chris Sully. Why is why is Manx Radio in existence? What is its aim? What's its raison d'etre? That hasn't really changed in 60 years, John. It's about uh, sort of holding power to account. It's about uh, balanced and accurate reporting. Uh, it's, a, it's a good and quick and easy way to get messaging and information out uh, to the public. It's about social cohesion, if you like, community glue, bringing people together, communities together, and giving a voice uh, to those with an alternative view. It's also got to be entertaining, hasn't it? It has, John. Absolutely. At the, the, the very centre of it, you know, there are, there are some folk who think that you could, uh, you, you can have something that, that steps up to the mark as a public service broadcaster when it's needed. Some people said, oh, so something like COVID will start a public service broadcaster and then we'll stop doing it and stop spending money on it in between. The comparison I would make is, is something like the fire service. Um, if you're lucky, if you're a, a firefighter and uh, you go in on a shift, hopefully most nights you won't be called out. When you are called out, when you're needed, that's when it comes into effect. And you can't step something like uh, Manx Radio or a public service media organisation up from scratch in no time at all. Where does the experience come from? Where do you find the journalists? So you have to keep up to date with the audience. I mean, there's an audience out there and you can't afford to sort of lose them all. You need them out there. So you have to keep up to date, if I can put it that way. Yeah, very much so. And, and, and you know, so if you look at what Manx Radio was in uh, in its early days, back in 1964 and even the late 60s, the early 70s, compared to what it is it's now... It sort of ate the BBC in those days. Light music and some news. That's Absolutely. basically what it went and, and, and I remember listening to a recording of, of Manx Radio from around about probably the early 80s even, and it was terribly, terribly posh. And absolutely everything was, was, was enunciated in the correct fashion. And the music was, as you say, it was, it was 
very easy on the ear, shall we say. That wouldn't really work in 2024. Did you say that in those days the presenters were a race apart? These days the demand basically is the people who you hear on the radio are like you and I. Very much so. And maybe we're not the best examples, but yeah, exactly. But the, the people want to hear real people. And I think, you know, ex- sharing experiences. At the end of the day, we live in the community on the Isle of Man. We are... Uh, you know, members of that same community, we have the same concerns. We have different concerns to some, same as others. Everybody's subject to the same, you know, the, the cost of living crisis, the other bits and pieces that go on, community, uh, cohesion, bringing that stuff together. We, we, I want to hear the same stuff. I want to hear on Manx Radio and the, the newspapers and elsewhere things that reflect the lives we live. And you have to be conscious, and your management board has to be conscious, there's competition out there these days. Massive competition, and not just from from things like the newspapers and from 3FM and from Energy and from online stations, but also uh, in so the, the biggest change I would contest probably from the 1960s is social media, which is a brilliant thing, but also a, a quite a, a, a difficult thing to counter. Let's take a situation... Interestingly, your phone was just going there. It was going there. Which so it how constantly uh, social media social is. Social media is, and the phones and whatever else. If something happens in Strand Street now, immediately people will put stuff on social media. Other people then speculate, I've heard it's this, I've heard that, somebody told me this. Great people will talk. Back in 1964, 69, 73, that would have been pub conversations. It would have been, I've heard this, I've heard that. The danger we have now, not just competition with other organisations, is that because we can't just go on air or online and say, we've heard this has happened in Strand Street and we've heard that somebody with a weapon has done this and whatever else. We have to verify. That hasn't changed in 60 years. That hasn't changed and it can't change. We've got to verify. We've got to be a reliable source. And we and that slows things down. People, it's all over social media these days before, you know, what's the, what's the old phrase that the uh, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. And that's that's really sort of the case now with social media. The problem with that is that people then say, well, you're very slow to react to things, but we can't afford to be sort of working on supposition and guessing. Does that mean we'll never get things wrong? No, of course it doesn't. We're human. And, and sometimes even when we verify and what was given to us as a reliable source, sometimes we'll be wrong. That happens. When that happens, we'll, we'll do the right thing to correct it. Uh, one other point, obviously, with social media, everything's in easily digestible chunks these days. Years ago, um, a longer programme, which people sat down in their armchairs and listened to, was much more acceptable than it is these days. These days, everything has to be compressed. You're right, and I think that's probably just the pace of life. You mentioned ago, uh, a few moments ago my phone ringing. We are living busy lives. The distractions are there. We still have things like Perspective on a Sunday, which is an hour-long listen. What we have done, I think... In the old days, to use that phrase, it was an appointment to listen. So if, for example, there was a six o'clock in the evening news bulletin that was an hour long, people would, whether it was on TV or radio, people would sit and watch and listen. Now people want that when they want it, and rightly so, because I've got a phone that will let me do that. So a growing thing for for Manx Radio and other public service media organisations is podcasts, and that allows us to put longer versions of something. So you might hear a a a two-and-a-half-minute, three-minute piece on the breakfast show about something with a far longer 20 minute piece maybe uh, as a podcast available via the website when you want it manx radio has attempted over the decades to be sometimes more successful than others all things to its audience sometimes it's spread its broadcasting across the water to north wales and the filed coast 
But what was being offered to that audience? Certainly it was eclectic. Let's listen to some examples. A familiar voice to those of a certain age, John Quilliam here, introducing a reading by the mellifluous Louise Quirk, who had quit school at 16 to start a lengthy radio career, helped by her glamour, that voice, and her calm manner on air. The Manx influenced by Mr Giovanelli and read to us by Louise Quirk. Manx links with Italy. Well, here I am back in the island after a memorable holiday in my native land, one of the most memorable features of which was the small link I was able to establish between the home of my childhood and the island, which is my chosen home of today. Through a plaque commemorating that visit, made in Manx granite by Mr Black of Onken, bearing a brass one of the three legs, the Manx coat of arms made by Mr Angus MacLeod of Castletown, has been affixed to the wall of Lentella Castle, and will remain there forever, or at any rate as long as the castle exists and it has already withstood the ravages of time for quite a few centuries. I hope this will be only one of the many ways in which I shall try to make this island better known and appreciated on the continent, especially in Italy, for parts of Italy, notably my own ancestral province of Abruzzi, share Gaelic origins with Ellen Bannon. Hi there, people. This is Guy Blackmore saying welcome aboard the Sugus Globe Probe. Every Tuesday at 5 o'clock, the Mystic Probe settles on the pop music charts of two countries somewhere in the world. And this time, first time, Belgium. And then we've got a tape message from the boss of Britain's only commercial radio station. And finally to the home of Mardi Gras, Brazil. But first, friends, get ready for this. Open your mouth and shut your eyes and ride away your wreck. We're back on board the uh, Globe Probe, this time heading up to the Isle of Man and the Irish Sea, where we've got for you an, a message on tape from Peter Neal, who is the manager of the station, and he's got another hobby. Listen to this. Hi there, this is Peter Neal on Manx Radio on the wonderful Isle of Man in the Irish Sea, saying hi there to Guy and all the wonderful listeners of Springbok Radio in South Africa. Well, I'm sitting at the moment in one of my favourite vantage points, the commentary box at the TT Grandstand, start of the world-famous TT races. And it's from here that I direct the Manx Radio commentaries live every year on these thrilling races. Now, many of you will have heard about these races and the renowned 37 and three-quarter mile circuit, believed to be one of the toughest in the world, and over the years I've certainly seen some splendid sights and some of the world's top riders fighting it out for coveted honours. One of the most famous riders was, in fact, the South African, Jim Redman, who, for three years running, won both the 250 and 350cc events just a few years ago. And not only was he a great rider, he proved himself a wonderful sportsman, too. Perhaps someday you'll be able to see the TT races when you visit our lovely island. I'm certain, like me, you'd really enjoy them. So, on that note, I'll close down transmissions by wishing you all the very best, lots of luck, and maybe someday in the not-too-distant future, I'll be saying hi there in person. So, goodbye and good luck to all of you listening from Peter Neal in the wonderful Isle of Man. Peter Neal sending the Manx Radio message and selling the TT races at the same time right across the world. One of the early presenters who had indeed had served on board Radio Caroline was Daffy Don Allen, here in conversation with another very familiar voice in the early days of Manx Radio and indeed in the latter days, Bernie Quayle. Don, I believe that uh, the Country Music Jamboree is 25 years old this year. Well, true. 
enough, Bernie, it, it uh, originated off the Isle of Man, would you believe? Yes. Uh, three and a half miles off the Isle of Man. Uh, the country jamboree, I'm not specifically sure uh, exactly when it started. I believe it was toward the latter end of 1966. Which would make this the 25th anniversary of well, the country jamboree. Uh, I suppose, officially speaking, yes. Um, we started a, a country jamboree on Radio Caroline. This was back in uh, the latter part of 66. Uh, I think November, but I couldn't say for sure. I'm sure that uh, one or two listeners would probably know exactly, you know, the, the week that I started. But um, it was purely a love of country music, and I saw the opportunity to uh, get in there and promote something that I loved, although at the time um, various disc jockeys were looking at me as if I was, you know, a bit insane, saying this will <laughs> never, never go down in the British Isles. Uh, so I started off with, a, with a, a very minute library, I might add, uh, plus a lot of personal favorites that I brought over from Canada. And uh, eventually, I had to go around to publishing companies, record companies, practically begging for, for albums. Uh, I got a, a few second-hand ones. I mean, in, in, in those days, Bernie, there was, um, there was no such demand on, on country music, but there, there were the diehards. And uh, we started what I thought was a relatively popular uh, show. It was a late Saturday night, so it wasn't interfering with main programming, mainstream programming. And it built up from there. Um, it got to, it, the most popular it got was uh, to the point where we recorded an extra show for the South Ship, which was um, off the, um, the South off Coast, the Essex Coast. Yes. Uh, that, that was a very brief spell, of course, and then, as you know, the Pirates came to an end. Yeah. Um, after the Pirates came to an end, I did a, a revival, a Caroline revival show over in Paris. Uh, I included quite a bit of country music in that. That went down very well. That, that was a one-off thing. And then, would you believe, exactly uh, to the day that uh, Radio Caroline uh, was last heard off the coast of Ramsey uh, in the Isle of Man, um, I got a call from Manx Radio. Chris Crookle, as I'm sure a lot of listeners remember him, right. uh, got in touch with me. And uh, exactly to the day that uh, I was last heard off the Isle of Man, um, I started on Manx Radio, March the 8th, my birthday, in 1969. My goodness. And uh, that, that, that was rather uh, ironical, I thought, you know, that it should be exactly to the day. Uh, and I had three, three and a half years, approximately three and a half, uh, very happy years in the Isle of Man. I must say, I, I still miss the Isle of Man in many respects. It was a lovely place to live, a very quiet place, a very law-abiding place. There was very little crime there, and uh, uh, at the time I was married, I had two children. And it was a place that... I, Myself and my wife felt it was a very safe place to live because right. people are, you know, are very orthodox in the Isle of Man. It was a, it was a wonderful three and a half years, and of course, Manx Radio, as you know, uh, at that uh, stage was the only commercial, the only legal commercial radio station in the British Isles. So I think that was another first. We had people listening to us in Blackpool and, and things like that, and this was out of our catchment area. This was just um, on on the fringe. But there were it's amazing the number of people that we had in that fringe area listening because there was no other stations to listen to apart from BBC. So to Frank and Fleur, and not forgetting the kids once again, Mark and Sylvia and Garth, very good afternoon to you over there in Belfast. And something that um, uh, Frank has told me quite some time ago, said that he's always he always has listened to Manx Radio on VHF in Belfast. And he says, uh, P.S. here, I've even received your transmitter that serves Douglas on 91.2, but this was very weak. Well, you must have a powerful radio receiver. Anyway, Frank, we'll uh, see what we can do about digging out that four-in-the-morning record. I don't even know where it is in the charts this way. If you can just bear with me, we'll get get the charts down here in front of us. I know last week it was number um, 29. 
However, it's not this week. We have Vincent by Don McLean at number 29. Hey, it's going up. It's number 24 this week. Farron Young's Four in the Morning is still climbing. Last week it was number 29. The week before that it was 39. And this week it's number 24. And we'll just have a quick look here. No, nope, somebody's, somebody's taking it out of the rack there. So it's, uh, it's quite popular with not only me, but almost everybody else here at the station. Anyway, uh, I think what we'll do just by chance, we'll put this Lester Flatt and Mac Wiseman album away and take out this Johnny Cash with June Carter, in which she, uh, she teams up with him on each and every one of these tracks, it seems, bar one or two. And uh, we'll see what this album sounds like. Released on the Headliner Harmony series, and it's in stereo. So I think what we're going to do here is hear their rendition of a tune called Orange Blossom Special. And I'm... Not too sure whether or not June's on this. Hey, look yonder coming, coming down that railroad track. Hey, look yonder coming. coming down the dangers of relying on others to return things, like records. Well, so far it's been a case of about how Manx Radio started and why it's still here after 60 years, which in radio terms, local radio terms, is an extraordinary long time. Well, let's just move slightly to one side for a moment and give you out there something to think about. Over the decades, many household names have come to the island to make personal appearances and this and that, and when they do, the media over here tend to leap upon them like uh, pouncing pumas. Well, Manx cats, anyway. But unlike the Manx moggy, these people bring their tales with them and are ready to share them with audiences and with radio people as well. Here's a quartet of personalities from the last few decades who you may recognise. See if you can name them. The first one? Well, you might need a clue. How about he once had a funky moped? I mean, I'd never been to the Isle of Man before and I flew and it was winter, so it wasn't the best time to see it. But I remember it being uh, an extremely uh, successful evening. I, had a gr- I remember having a great time, and the audience very, very friendly, very relaxed. Um, and uh, I remember about, there must have been about 30 or 40 Scotsmen in, and I thought I was going to get a hard time, you know. Far from it, far from it. Um, they, they were great fun. You probably know yourself on a smaller scale, Sarah, because you are on the fringes of the entertainment world, what it is like to be concentrating, giving and sharing so much of yourself as we have to do with the public, and at the same time having personal worries. I remember, really, as a young girl... If I could bring the interview back to my bedside book... I don't really want to promote that book, darlings, because the publishers can't print enough of them as it is. First of all, there's the extraordinary quality of loyalty in, in the British public, of loyalty to an idea, to a concept. They, once you've given them something they like and repeated it, and you have repelled all people who don't like it because you've been running the series long enough. Generation Game is another example, where nobody watched the Generation Game unless they liked Bruce Forsyth. I mean, by that time, he'd repelled all hostile borders. You knew where he lived. You didn't tune in at that time if you didn't like him. Uh, so replacing him with Larry Grayson, while it was a bold move, which was partially successful, nevertheless, after a while, people said, no, it's not the same. Man, nice to see you back in the island again. Thank you. Bit different from Detroit or even Essex, I guess. What, the Isle of Man? Yeah. yeah. I guess so, yeah. It's nice here, though. Do you sort of identify yourself with the biker image at all? Yes, I guess so. Um, with the leather and the rock and roll and the... And the um, I'm trying to think of a nice word for it. Oomph. <laughs> Let's just run down the list. Jasper Carrot. Memories of appearing at the Falcon Cliff in Douglas. Dame Edna Everidge. 
Bob Monkhouse. And our rock correspondent, the lovely David Callister, leaving his usual area of operations to interview Susie Quattro. Of course, uh, through those 60 years, the music played altered quite considerably. those decades. Manx Radio has always been aware of why it's here and the importance of keeping it Manx. When the broadcasting of obituary notices started, there was some comment, still is, both on the island and, in particular, off the island. But in a place that's too big to put a notice up in the local square, it was a way of reaching many people with something they would want to know and might not hear for some time otherwise. A number of the things the radio broadcasts are uniquely Manx. Take, for instance, the sold-out every year gathering at the Braid I Stedford. Major Jeff Crellin was chairman for over 20 years. He told the moving story of the Ronag Treacle Mines. The parish of Arbury is, in shape, rather like the island, being rather longer than wide, tapering at its southern and northern ends. Towards the northern extremity between Ballarock and Ronag, is that group of ruined buildings known as the Old Ronig Mine. And April the 1st this year marks the 95th anniversary of its closure. 1902 was its last working year, except for a period during the First World War when the mine was briefly reopened to supply a much-needed ingredient for the making of explosives. According to the great Ronig Mining Company accounts in the museum, 29,000 barrels of treacle were extracted in 1902, and it does seem strange that the mine should suddenly shut down the following year, throwing dozens of men out of work and delivering a financial blow from which Ronig has never really recovered. Mr. Arthur Flood of Colby, whose uncle was under-manager of the mine, retains a deep interest in the history of it and is an authority on the mine. Mr. Flood told me that there have been a lot of theories as to why the mine closed. But, for once, 
the failure of Dumble's bank was not to blame. And certainly the mine was not worked out by any means. As a matter of fact, said Mr. Flood, my uncle told me that when they reopened the Derby seam during the Great War, they found traces of a much higher grade of treacle than previously thought possible, and that it was there in viable quantities. In Mr. Flood's opinion, the closure was due to an accumulation of difficulties, any one of which the company would have surmounted. Ronig treacle has always been of commercial or low-grade quality, and when they struck high-grade treacle when boring for bitumen in the West Indies, the price of the Manx product had to come down. The government lent money on the condition that the company produced from distilled treacle a liqueur named Manx Mist, which would advertise the island. A lot of money was spent on production, and the liqueur was widely advertised for making Manx coffee. But the locals, instead of using cream, used buttermilk, which gave it an odd taste, although, as they said, it was a lot cheaper. And gradually it disappeared from the market. An interesting point is that a law passed at that time is still in existence, making it an offence to distill spirit privately from raw treacle. This was necessary, as the miners were selling their homemade poteen in Manx mist bottles to unsuspecting tourists. The government also lent money towards a scheme for converting the manager's house into a first-class hotel to catch the passing carriage trade. But this also became a loser, probably because the road had not yet been made up. Then the company tried to introduce a refinery to convert treacle into high-grade syrup, but bumped into the cons conservation people, who had it stopped, owing to the dangers of pollution and the seabirds becoming treacled up. This combination of circumstances brought the company to the brink, and in June 1902 they held a meeting to decide on future policy. It was one of the hottest Junes for decades, day after day of unclouded sunshine, and by the twelfth the waste treacle inherent in the slag became unstable and started to run downhill. By four o'clock it had reached a row of miners' cottages named Mafeking Terrace. It burst in through the back doors and downstairs windows, trapping Mr. Flood's aunt, Mrs. Dora Flood, who was taking a bath in the kitchen of number three. At this point, however, it is my duty to report that sadly, insular industrial archaeology suffered a severe blow by the loss of the documented conclusion to this very important piece of Southside history. But it is of some comfort to report that Dora Flood did survive the Mafeking Terrace disaster and emigrated to the United States in America, where in Monterey, California, she opened a charitable haven for lonely seamen, known as the Bear Flag Restaurant, graphically documented by American historian John Steinbeck who also published a fascinating and revealing monograph on Cancer Paguris Marinal Insularis, the Manx Crab, well known to us all.
Over the next 12 months on Manx Radio, in digestible chunks, as is now the modern fashion, what we saw, what we said, and how we told you about it. And to finish this programme, with where we started. Happy listening to you all.